Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, lockdown is coming on Boxing Day. Some say it's a great idea. Others say it's a horrible idea. How do you balance it? China is once again trying to take over the world. We'll bring you up to date on what they're up to now. And Apple is moving forward on a self-driving car. Will we soon be driving an Apple down the road? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Just a reminder to visit the website at 900CHML.com and make a donation to the Christmas Tree of Hope campaign or text donate to 30333. We need your help this year more than ever. But not as much as my mom's Martha Stewart tree. It's demoed! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Is, are the, is that acceptable? Are the judges accepting that? Will the judge... Yes, the judges have given us the okay for that. You know, I was going to play something. That's all we need. We only need one judge today. No sense debating anything. That just wastes time. Uh, it is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show uh, on the air as he has for 41 weeks. Uh, my daughter told me before the show started, can you keep your voice down today, Dad? I'm upstairs doing an exam. You know, I got a radio show. You know, you know, I, I understand that, you know, I, I have to corner off my little hole in the room and the little hole in the house to do my little uh, broadcast from. But it, it, now it's apparently it's starting to interfere with the other members of the household. So um, maybe after the new year, I might start lockdown in the garage. I'll be broadcasting right next to the minivan uh, and the bicycles. Uh, that's the way it's looking. All right, so uh, maybe she'll come down in an hour and tell us how well she did. Uh, I'm not sure. So uh, we don't know exactly how. We didn't know exactly how. Uh, we don't know exactly how the the rest of the show is going to go. But it may actually hinge on how she does on that exam. All right, let's move on. Uh, it's another busy day right here at uh, the home of talk as we head down, uh, head into another lockdown. And oh yeah. See, that's why I went with the Beach Boys shutdown thing. I didn't want to, you know, whenever you hear lockdown, everybody just, ah, and it's amazing. Don't you find it absolutely amazing that uh, some people are are are, are saying, uh, you know, we should have done this uh, a week ago. Why aren't we doing it right now? Let's do it right now. And then there's others that says, how can you dare do this? Like, how do you lead in, in something like this? And it was interesting because I, I, uh, I was watching CTV News Channel today and uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward was on there. And as you know, Halton is not in a lockdown. And they questioned her about that. And, and the reporter said, well, you were on this show a few days ago saying, you know, this should be based in science and we're not, you know, we don't need a lockdown. And, and the mayor of Oakville and the mayor, mayor of Burlington with some others, you know, weeks ago penned a letter to uh, the premier, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I'm not sure how Halton cannot be in a lockdown. And again, uh, she was questioned about this on CTV News. We're trying to get her on. And, and you know, basically said, well, she's getting her information from science, which is what 
you know, again, anyone who's attacking the province or the premier, it, it seems to use that stance, that in surgical approach, although we never know what that is, and saying that her opinion has changed because she's talked to uh, the healthcare uh, people in the hospitals in Burlington and says, well, we got to be ready for surge capacity here. Well, the hospitals have been saying that for weeks. So uh, it's amazing how there's there's politicians playing both sides of the fence here and and, and trying to say one thing and do another. But uh, I'd love to, to get her on the air and ask her, uh, why is Halton not in a lockdown? I understand their numbers this week <laughs> don't warrant it. But we remember when when the mayor of Burlington and the, and the mayor of of of, uh, of Oakville uh, several weeks ago rallied to keep themselves out of a next level, which which uh, ended up changing when we moved to a new, a new system of, of stages, and they were eventually put in it anyway. And the week or two after that, their numbers shot way up. So uh, it's amazing the politics that's going on here. And I remember even at the time, uh, Mayor Fred said, you know, guys, we let's have a united front here. So uh, it's fascinating to me that Hamilton is in a lockdown, that Peel is in a lockdown, and Halton is not in a lockdown because this week their numbers are low enough. And again, when asked, uh, when the mayor was asked how she felt about uh, the lockdown starting uh, on Boxing Day, now she's in full agreement with it because... Because she has talked to the head of the hospitals there and they understand that they have to be prepared for surge capacity from whether it's from Hamilton or Toronto. So, uh, again, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm kind of stunned here that, uh, that, 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 uh, people are, are, are kind of, uh, flip-flopping on this. I'll say it, flip-flopping. And, um, you know, I, I, even though the numbers aren't there to the fact that Halton is not in a lockdown is just to me asinine. Why would you lock down Hamilton and not Halton? And then you're locking down Peel. Guess where everybody's coming from? You know, it's the hole in the donut. Uh, so anyway, how that is preventative medicine and, you know, people are screaming at the premier to lock things down now and Halton is, you know, and I mean, you could say, well, it's up to the premier. Well, no, the mayors of those cities could shut those down, the, those places down as well. So, uh, again, it's fascinating where we find ourselves and Hamilton being in a lockdown and nobody seems to be talking about that and Halton is not. It's, it's just absolutely bizarre to me. All right. Let's move on and, uh, and, and get on to where Ottawa is right now. Ottawa's mayor is pushing to remain in the same status or be placed under the same lockdown time frame as Northern Ontario. Why does Northern Ontario get a two-week shutdown and the rest of us, particularly Ottawa, that has very low numbers, gets a 28-day lockdown? Jim Watson believes Ottawa should be recognized for, quote, following the rules and doing a very good job at it. Recognizing the good behavior of our businesses and our hospitals and our healthcare workers and the citizenry of the nation's capital. The pitch has been put before the Premier's office. In his announcement Monday, Doug Ford hinted Ottawa is included in the 28-day order because there's a risk of people travelling there from other Ontario regions and Quebec. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Raywat uh, Dion Anden. He uh, uh, is a epidemiologist and science communicator specializing in global health and uh, education at the University of Ottawa and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, thank you. 
so you're at the University of Ottawa. So uh, let's talk about your city in particular, because I know the mayor of Ottawa is uh, upset because of this province-wide lockdown. Ottawa, we, me- we remember at the beginning of this, had some difficulty. I think it was the third or fourth uh, uh, area of, of concern in the province now has done a tremendous job of bringing themselves uh, back down. Uh, what are your thoughts on where, where Ottawa is right now? Well, obviously we're doing well, but we're not doing great. We're in the orangey zone. And it's unclear why we did well. And part of it is luck, luck around demographics and geography and things like that. And some of it is uh, behavior. So I think Ottawans in general have been more compliant with public health guidance, which is a, a great thing. But having said all that, there's some good things and bad things happening. The good thing is our case numbers are down, our ICUs are empty. The bad thing is our wastewater analysis is showing that we're an upward trend, so that's not great. And we're adjacent to Quebec, which has a lockdown, so there's an every expectation that we're going to have shoppers streaming over from Quebec into Ottawa. Uh, you talked about certain areas, and, and many were asking how Ottawa managed to do it, because at one time, I think it was like third behind uh, Toronto and Peel uh, for hotspots. You know, and, and you have to obviously give credit to the people, uh, but on the other hand, is this re- really about compliance or is it about privilege? I mean, we're seeing the same thing here in Halton, where, uh, you know, the cases are relatively low, but also uh, a higher standard of living. More people are working from home, have the option to do that. So is that not as much uh, an addition to this, perhaps more than, than actual behavior? 100%. Yeah, you can't quantify that enough. Um, we have white-collar workers who can walk from home and who don't have to take mass transit to get to work, who can have their kids stay home with them. All that stuff matters. Uh, we don't have multi-generational dwellings as much as we do in Peel and Toronto, which, of course, uh, it leads to the spread of disease from lower uh, age groups into higher age groups, which in turn leads to hospitalizations. So we're very lucky in many ways. Then there's the stochasticity. That's the randomness that we can't quantify either. So who knows what's happening? All we know is we're doing well right now, but that could change any minute. And are you surprised how quickly this came about? Is there anything you can tell us about, um, again, it was it, they, they were peaking around the third place, and then all of a sudden, boom, it seemed within a few weeks they, were, they had turned this around. Um, was, there a different, was there a messaging? Was it, what do you think it was, other than what we've obviously talked about? It's a combination of things. I think there was a, a, a couple of weeks of restrictions placed back in October, I think it was, that led to a profound change. And I, I'm a big fan of looking at the wastewater analysis because it's free of bias. And we saw the wastewater analysis drop down almost exactly two weeks after the local restrictions were put into place. And I think compliance has a big part of it. I mean, we have a really good public health leader in Dr. Vera Etches who is approachable and recognizable. People see her in the grocery stores. And you don't get that same friendliness or recognizability in a larger center. So I think putting a face on the messaging helps. Are those in Ottawa, what's the resistance to this? Is it, does everybody feel the same way the mayor does? I mean, considering where you have been and how quickly it can rebound, uh, what, how does the citizenry feel about this? Well, of course, there's going to be those who agree and those who disagree, and it's unclear who's right. You know, um, definitely many people feel they're being punished for doing a good job, kind of like how they felt when it was announced that we wouldn't be getting the vaccines, but in fact, we were getting the vaccines, because uh, why must people who did a good job be punished with having to wait longer for salvation? Then there are those who see it in a global sense, that is that, you know, we have to 
push down the provincial numbers as a whole. We do have the threat of the Quebec border right next door, and our wastewater analysis is trending upwards. So there's a variety of sentiment in the city. Wow, so much, uh, so many layers to this onion, isn't there? Um, we talk about the hospital capacity and how that has changed uh, over the last few weeks for Ottawa. Right. So the ICU beds are empty right now, which is great. Now, keep in mind, there are three ways to get your, your ICU beds down to zero. One is not to get infected in the first place. The second is to recover. And the third is to die. And we don't think the third thing is what happened. But we do see that in other jurisdictions where a, a big die-off results in an artificial reduction in ICU um, capacity or ICU filling up, rather. But what we, we do see now is, I think, due in large part to um, outbreaks in lesser vulnerable populations, the ICU beds are not filled up, hospital capacity is you know, around 80 to 90%, and our reproduction number is just above one, which means we are technically in exponential growth again, which is not great. Um, but this has always been about hospital capacity, and right now we're looking pretty good. Um, obviously, the the lockdown starts Boxing Day. Initially, it was scheduled for Christmas Eve. Some say it should start now. It should have started last week. How do you balance this? It's a political choice, right? So let's say we, we start Boxing Day. Essentially, that's signaling to people, hey, go crazy over Christmas, one could argue. Or one could argue, start on Boxing Day because we appreciate that people need time to get used to this idea to have a good Christmas. So there are two ways to take this. I'm not sure what the right way is. I do think, though, that what we're missing from all this is a goal. What is the goal here? Is it just to get a handle on things, or is it to hold tight, prevent a third wave, and wait for the vaccine to take effect? If it's the latter, then we have to think about a longer-term strategy, and the provincial-wide approach is the right way to go. So all of this belies the absence of a long-term strategy. If, in fact, uh, a COVID zero approach is the way to go, we should start right right now. It looks to me like we're just sort of holding, uh, the attempt is to hold the, um, the province just below the crisis point as long as we can. Uh, obviously, many have stated that January or February is of great concern in regard to this uh, pandemic, uh, especially considering the holidays. Some may not practice uh, the safe protocol. Obviously, everybody uh, should, must, uh, but some will not. And many are concerned about uh, what happens in that month or so afterwards. Will this alter that in some way? Can this help that? Yes, it will help. Without question. So, in fact, I think the modeling for January is what drove the desire to have these um, these lockdowns in place. So, in absence of these restrictions, we'll be looking at a really crisis through January. This is going to help, absolutely. So, what do you say to those? Because it seems today uh, you have just as many saying yay and just as many saying nay. Uh, what do you say to, to both sides at this time? Oh, boy. I'm, I'm so glad I'm not the one making these decisions. Yeah. I really feel for the premier and his advisors. Even though I disagree with many things they've done over time, I, I do not envy them their position. What you say to people is, look, we're in crisis mode. It's real. And there are people in some parts of the province that are suffering inexplicably and immeasurably, whereas other parts of the province are, are doing well. So if we care about our fellow citizens, as we should, I think we have to take a hard look at what needs to be done. Remember, this is all predicated on these lockdowns being disincentives for human behavior. We wouldn't need to do them if people behaved a certain way mm. uniformly. You know, so if we all voluntarily restricted our exposures, we probably wouldn't need to have these economic restrictions. So ultimately, this always in the hands of the citizens to do the right thing.
Uh, obviously, we know we've been through this uh, for 41 weeks now. However long it, it's been, uh, one day seems to, to bleed into the other. We certainly know the fatigue and and how protocol perhaps was a little lax, and, and, and that's why we, we, why we are where we are, not to mention obviously being closed up uh, for winter. Uh, d- does this send that message that, man, we got to batten down the hatches? we got to make sure that we get this thing uh, under control uh, through January, or do you think you're going to see people rebelling? I think we're going to see people rebelling. I do. I, and this is not to forgive that behavior, not at all. I think we actually should be doing these um, these hard measures now to get the ICUs under control across the province. But we're already seeing protests in Alberta and Quebec. I suspect we're going to have them in, uh, in Toronto and Ottawa as well. So I don't know what to do about it. I think that we have to look at some more creative solutions. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of the rapid testing solution. Let's put the power in the hands of the citizens. That Why haven't we got there, doctor? Many people have talked about that. You know, they talk about that with the airports and such and people coming in, that the ability to do that testing uh, and testing, testing, testing has been the mantra since this all began. Why do we not have that rapid or high-speed testing? Yeah, so there are a variety of rapid testing technologies available. Some of them require healthcare oversight to do the swab test. Some require it to be sent to a lab, some whatever. So depending upon which technology you use, this determines how you can use it. I think the fear is once you introduce this technology, then the, the cat is out of the bag. And if it's bad, if it floods us with bad data and creates chaos, you can't roll back you know, time. But what about other countries that are doing this? Yeah, I think I think it's time. The time is now, right? So in the UK, for example, nurses self-test at home to tell themselves whether or not they're infectious before they go to work. We can do that here. At the very least, we can give it to our healthcare providers. We have places like Slovakia that did mass 100% saturation testing and drove their COVID down to zero because they tested the entire country in one weekend. We could do similar things. We don't have to go that extreme, but Michael Minna in the USA is advocating that we give everyone the at-home pregnancy-style test. That way you know if you're infectious or not, you can self-restrict, and that way we can reduce transmission without having to close things down. So I think it's time for that creative way of pushing things. Wasn't it time six months ago? <laughs> Maybe six months ago the technology was not there, but I think we're, we're there now. All right, Dr. Dr. Rewa Dion Anden has been with us, epidemiologist and science communicator specializing in global health at the University of Ottawa. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. All right. The Canadian branch of the Bank of China, as well as anti-abortion groups, are among some of the recipients of the federal wage subsidy. Uh, the Canada, uh, Canada Revenue Agency said on Monday uh, that a uh, searchable registry of 300, over 339,000 businesses, charities, and nonprofits that applied and received for the wage subsidy. Among them is the Bank of China, a wholly owned subsidiary of one of uh, China's largest state-owned banks. To talk more about all of this and what the heck is going on uh, is Amanda Connolly and from Global News, and she is with us now. You can find uh, her column on the Global website on our our website right now, Bank of China, uh, anti-abortion groups among uh, coronavirus wage subsidy recipients. Amanda Con- uh, Connolly is with us now. Amanda, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me, and the same to you as well. Of course, it's a crazy time right now. Boy, is it ever. And, you know, certainly lots of chatter in regard to uh, the money flying out of Ottawa and where it is going. And I don't think you'll find any, uh, see any Canadian that is certainly not concerned about it. But on the other hand, you know, people need to be helped. This is an, an unbelievable time that we're going through. But as you're doing some digging and such, uh, you're finding uh, relations to uh, the Bank of China. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, and so as you mentioned there in your intro, of course, this is uh, all related to the federal wage subsidy program, which has been going on for several months now. Uh, and the Canada Revenue Agency put out a searchable registry on Monday of all of the businesses, the charities, uh, the nonprofits that have applied for and gotten this. And we're talking a substantial number. Again, clearly we've heard from Canadians across the country that there is a, a, a very strong need for support to be able to keep employees on the payroll here. But when we're going through the listing, of some of the businesses, the charities that have actually gotten this, there are certainly some questions being raised because of the presence of state-owned entities on that, along with, as you mentioned as well, anti-abortion groups and uh, as well the, the weed charity is on here too. So uh, we're looking through a number of the uh, the groups and the entities on here and, and really kind of uh, trying to get an understanding of um, whether there could have been more done to uh, perhaps take a closer look at this and uh, also balance that out, of course, with the very pressing need of, of Canadians and businesses to have that support to stay employed. And how did the, tell us about the We Charity angle and, and what's the relation there? Well, so again, we, we have very little information right now. Again, because this is all related to tax records, there is not a lot of clear information coming out in terms of, for example, the amounts that any of these entities or companies have actually been getting. We've asked that information. It has not been provided yet. Um, but what we do know is that they are giving a listing of the name of each entity that has gotten that. And so you can go through and search for any, um, you know, group or charity or that, what have you that is on there. And I would just point out for viewers in the interest of full disclosure that Chorus, the parent company of Global News and Global News Radio, is among those recipients of the federal wage subsidy that's been forthcoming and openly disclosed so far. Um, but again, so we're kind of going through here and looking at the full picture of uh, who has been getting this. And so again, we charity among those the bank the Canadian branch of the Bank of China, which is of course a state owned entity, and it's not the only one uh, in terms of Chinese state owned entities on there as well. Sinopec, which is the um, the basically the uh, owned by the China Petrochemical Corporation, also among there as well. And so we're certainly hearing uh, a lot of questions here, but in terms of what they're actually looking at for next steps, that's really unclear at this point. Uh, obviously, you're gonna is gonna be a wide swath of of uh, businesses, charities, whatever that that are that, you know to go through there. But what about the red flags regarding uh, the Bank of China? I mean, it certainly seems the government is taking a much harsher, harsher, a harsher stance on China of late. Uh, how big of a red flag is that? Yeah, and so this all comes in the context, of course, as well. We had seen earlier in the pandemic. Of course, your your listeners will be very familiar, I'm sure, with the fact that. Uh, the economic damage from the pandemic right now has been devastating for so many businesses. Uh, one of the issues that we have been hearing, too, is the, the potential for kind of vulnerabilities for um, Canadian companies, for um, hostile takeovers, for things like that. And so this is all playing into the same kind of landscape here where there's, a, there's an increasingly tough eye being put on, um, the, you know, whether it be uh, state-owned takeovers, which we saw the government reject this morning from one Chinese miner on national security grounds, to um, how state-owned enterprises appear to be accessing this program designed for Canadian companies and charities and, and what have you. And so this really is, as you're saying, they're more of a critical eye. Um, we did speak with uh, the government um, yesterday and as press secretary for finance minister, Christian Freeland was saying that, look, this program here was put in place to try and get money out the door as quickly as possible, uh, that they recognize that some state owned enterprises have been accessing this program and they plan to review the issue for future periods. But again, what that actually means, whether um, the government could look at asking for this money to be, pay to be paid back, at changing the eligibility criteria here. Uh, so far, we have no, no clear answers from any government officials on that. 
Uh, that was my next question. Is any any chance of any of these paying it back? I mean, we've certainly heard that any citizenry that gets this will have this clad, uh, clawed back at tax time, any of these benefits. Uh, where does this go from here, then, if they're not... Do we know if they're going to take any action on this? Yeah, that really is the big question moving forward. I spoke with one uh, one government official, one source, yesterday, and they were saying, again, there there is very little information right now. Uh, we don't know what what those next steps could look like. And again, as you mentioned, of course, this is all coming at a time when Canadians who received the the CERB, um, the, uh, the the benefit going out to Canadians earlier this year, who had lost their jobs, are in a difficult situation right now. Many of them saying, uh, we're not prepared to pay it back. What do we do here? This is extra work. Um, we're not prepared for this. And so there is that kind of dichotomy in terms of what the average Canadian is looking at and being asked to do and whether that same standard will be will be applied to the businesses that access this. And again, kind of to look more clearly in the specifics here, the only real criteria for the wage subsidy was that a company had to show that they had had a set, a, a specific drop in revenue. And from what it looks like so far, again, that, that is really the only metric here. And you can certainly imagine that um, many companies from many backgrounds all would have been able to prove that drop in revenue because of just this broader economic situation. And so that kind of gets again to the question of um, how is this being checked? How is it being verified? Do you need to have additional steps in place now that we are, I suppose you could say, out of that immediate crisis situation and more into kind of a stabilization? The government's talking about looking towards recovery, looking towards moving to next steps. I think that's all part of the conversation that we're going to see here, particularly when the House comes back in January. Of course, they're off right now until the middle of that month. So this is all happening outside of the House of Commons when you would normally expect to have quite a bit of questions being raised on this. Hmm. And you have to wonder, I mean, this all of these exercises were so large uh, and, and such big projects to roll out in, in such a, 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 a short period of time. Do we have the time to go back and investigate them all and get knee deep into what went right and what went, uh, what went wrong? Obviously, we're supposed to. We should. But man, you know, it's taken us nine, ten months to get out of this. How long is it going to take to find those answers? Well, exactly. And that's part of it. Again, the, the big challenge here is that you're talking about um, a huge scope and size for so many of these programs, whether it be the CERB, the wage subsidy, the, the massive range of supports that have been put in place here. They were huge undertakings. You're talking about significant amounts of money rolling out the door as quickly as possible here because of how how deeply people were hurting when this first uh, hit and has continued to to hit Canadians and their businesses. And so that that's kind of the balancing act that the, that the government is facing right now is, again, how do you, um, do you, I guess, uh, go back and try and do more more work looking backwards while this is all still happening very much in real time for Mm. so many businesses and for Canadian families as well. And that I think we're going to, we're certainly going to be watching that very carefully going forward. And that really will be kind of that, that um, tightrope that the government has to walk on, on this matter. Amanda Connolly has been with us from Global News. Make sure you take a peek at uh, the website and you will find uh, her column, Bank of China, Anti-Abortion Groups Among uh, Coronavirus Wage Subsidy Recipients. Amanda, thank you so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You as well. Thank you. All right. We certainly know what it's like to live uh, nine and ten months uh, through a global pandemic and now while waiting for a vaccine. 
and uh, what happens as we get out the tail end of this pandemic? What do we have to do to keep ourselves safe and perhaps not make uh, similar mistakes as we did the first time? And what uh, what can we learn from other uh, towards other pandemics moving forward? To talk more about all of this, Dr. Michael Wolfson is with us, adjunct professor with the University of Ottawa and award-winning Canada Research Chair in Population Health Modeling, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thanks, uh, given the physical distancing and all that. I understand. Uh, you talk about uh, the COVID-19 vaccination and how we have to be able to collect a database and monitor all of this. What, are, what exactly are you talking about? What do we need to do here? Well, ideally, whenever anybody is vaccinated uh, in a single uniform standardized database across the country, We'd get the person's health health number, name and address, but also which batch of vaccine, uh, whether it was their first or second dose, uh, and uh, capture ideally things like their occupation. You know, we've been hearing about, uh, I heard the mayor of uh, Peel on the radio uh, a little while ago saying, you know, there really is a problem with uh, the difference in how uh, workers in some industries are not getting uh, vaccinated, we can ignore that phone, (laughs) Um, uh, as much as uh, other people. So being able to track how things are rolling out, uh, you know, the different racial and ethnic groups, uh, are they being evenly treated? Are urban and rural people uh, getting the vaccines in the same amount? That kind of monitoring of the vaccine rollout, I think, is critical. And do we do that with other vaccines or other medications? Uh, Generally, no. Uh, But... uh, this is the, you know, since 1918, there's never been anything as serious as this. You know, hmm. SARS was pretty serious, but it died out pretty quickly. What are the challenges to doing such a thing? How difficult is this? Well, you know, we certainly seem to be able to play computer games and watch Netflix pretty easily. So there's very sophisticated <laughs> software out there, you know, real-time stuff. Uh, but somehow governments have not gotten their acts together that's part of the problem. Another is that uh, the provinces keep saying, uh, you know, healthcare is our jurisdiction, uh, federal government, you just give us bags of money and otherwise keep your nose out. But the result has been a, a patchwork and hodgepodge of uh, computer systems that don't talk to each other. Considering um, what has been done with this COVID-19 vaccination, the speed in which everyone has worked together in order to make this a reality, right from uh, production through to uh, approval and such, wouldn't this be the next logical step? Oh, it would have been a logical step back in August or earlier when the federal government was negotiating with the suppliers to actually buy the stuff you know you know you you arrange to buy the vaccine you arrange to buy the syringes you start talking to the military about helping to manage the logistics uh, i don't know why people haven't already uh, been uh, talking to doing their informatics homework and uh, getting the it systems in place to capture all the information is this too big a job for the government is this something maybe the 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 vaccination company should be involved in or is that opening up another can of worms we don't need well the vaccination companies have their areas of expertise you know in terms of manufacturing uh, the vaccine but information systems isn't one of them and you know aside from this rollout right now the vaccination the largest peacetime exercise in the country is that can conducting the population census every five years so uh, in terms of scale that's 
undoubtedly the biggest thing that uh, goes on of this sort. Uh, what do you think the chances are of this happening? Uh, it, won't this have to be a necessity just to follow this up? Well, I think it, I certainly agree it's a necessity. Uh, the chances, that, you know, it's been interesting over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed uh, not just uh, newspaper articles, but even uh, the Prime Minister when he was talking on CBC to Rosemary Barton on Sunday, saying, you know, we really got to get our to act together. I'm paraphrasing. But then he's, you know, to my taste, he sort of chickened out and said, well, we, we've got to play nice with the provinces and didn't really push the point. Uh, my view is that, yeah. Constitution says that health care is uh, principally, but not 100 percent, a provincial jurisdiction. But statistics in the Constitution of Canada for 150 years have been 100 percent federal jurisdiction. So I'm sure that there's a way that the statistical mandate of the federal government, you know, data collection and the provincial role for uh, figuring out how to deliver it, you know, tailoring it to their own unique circumstances. Uh, there's no problem with having those two working together. We've certainly seen over the course of this pandemic what has worked, what hasn't worked, uh, who has been nimble, who hasn't been nimble. Uh, in, in some situations, both provincial, federal, municipal governments have been praised for the work they've done. Other times uh, have been criticized. Are you confident that the federal government is nimble enough to manage something like this? Oh, I'm not sure. There are parts of the, you know, the federal government is a very big organization. And yeah. Parts of it are nimble and parts of it are stodgy. So the the trick is, I think, to attract the attention at the highest levels politically and say, let's put our nimble people onto this. You know, they, it has to be given adequate priority. You know, there's lots of competing priorities in the current circumstance. I certainly uh, have sympathy for the, the, the folks in the federal government who have to mm. ride herd and try and keep all this going. But uh, to my taste, you know, this requires much higher priority than it's been given. Uh, due to the fact there are or appear to be so many different types of vaccines that are on the horizon, we're now hearing about mutations of this virus, which I guess is quite common with the coronavirus. Um, and again, due to the fact we've got so many uh, cooks in the kitchen, per se, is that not even more of a need to make sure, you know, as you said, who got what, how much did they get, any adverse reaction? Uh, again, I've asked experts uh, uh, over the last several weeks, will one of these vaccinations prove to be better than the other? And it would this it would be this sort of information that would qualify that. No. Oh, for sure. And uh, you want to keep track of it not only by which you know brand or type of vaccination is, but down to the batch level. Part of the delay, I think, in uh, Health Canada and, and FDA for sure in certifying these vaccines has not been about the uh, whether or not the stage three clinical trials worked. I think that was pretty clear. But they also go and inspect the factories to make sure that the production is good. And uh, we heard recently about bottles, the vials of a vaccine that were overfilled. So uh, you can actually get five rather than four doses out of it. Well, we need to keep track not only the type of vaccine, but also the batch number, for example. Uh, I'm also very concerned about uh, being able to follow adverse reactions. You know, it's one thing to tell people quite reasonably, stay here for 15 minutes and we'll see if you have an allergic reaction. But, you know, we have these crazy anti-vaxxers who, you know, are peddling garbage like uh, the vaccine's going to cause female infertility. Well, hmm. the only way we're going to know that is by having a, and be able to refute it, uh, you know, thoroughly and empirically is by having a vaccine registry that can follow people up and say, here's what's happening or not and right, happening in that case. 
and right now we we don't have that we have none of that that's my understanding yeah we have a patchwork uh is this a concern or will this be a concern when it is perhaps a problem well you know when people start picking up and moving on this three months or six months from now when there's sheaths of paper lying around in boxes saying here's the names of you know for each person who gets vaccinated it's going to be too late you know the yeah. cost of digitizing all that stuff and assembling it into a database you want to do that from the get-go you don't want to leave it to the last minute that's been the problem with a lot of stuff you know people you know understandably and it's true a lot of uh, in a lot of the healthcare system people say I, i'm on the front line i need to have another ventilator i need to be able to treat this patient and it is true that sometimes filling in lots of forms and collecting information about what's happening to whom is painful or seems boring yeah but it's absolutely essential if we're going to work smarter rather than harder and actually understand what's going on Dr. Michael Wolfson has been with us, adjunct professor with the University of Ottawa and award-winning Canada Research Chair in Population Health Modeling. Michael, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, and you'll be well, too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Let's uh, change it away from COVID. Why not? Taiwan is urging Canada to join in the global uh, coalition against China. That is the article in the Globe and Mail today. The foreign affairs minister of Taiwan says Beijing has already begun what military uh, strategists call a gray zone assault on the self-governing island of 24 million. And urging Canada and other like-minded democracies to use sanctions and increase trade ties to dissuade China from a full-scale takeover. To talk more about this, Charles Burton with us, senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and former counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China, and is with us now. Charles, thanks again for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good to hear from you, Scott. Everything's good down here in St. Catharines. Nice sunny afternoon. So we certainly remember uh, when Hong Kong was going, you know, back at uh, uh, 1999, I guess it was, when we uh, Hong Kong was going to be turned back over uh, to China from the United Kingdom. Obviously, China, or sorry, Hong Kong, a uh, an economic jewel of that region. Many were hoping that China would be more like Hong Kong as opposed to trying to make Hong Kong uh, more like China. Uh, once this, uh, once it changed hands, obviously that has not been. In the case is the same thing happening to Taiwan here. Well, it's a slightly different situation. Um, you, you know, Taiwan is a is a whole province, and uh, Hong Kong was a British colony. Um, Taiwan has made a successful transition from the nationalists. You know, the the regime that the that the communists um, defeated in 1949. Um, Left, left the mainland of China and, and established themselves on the island of Taiwan where they established a sort of military defense area. It's very hard to, you know, to, to, to assault an island. And over time, and, you know, starting in the 80s, I guess, Taiwan gradually transformed itself into a vibrant democracy, very much like Canada, you know, uh, uh, independence of the judiciary, um, governments elected by free and fair ele- uh, elections, and um, right now the the government of Taiwan, which was established by a, by a, a, an electoral process, which you know had no corruption or or um, interference in it whatsoever. I, I was part of the international election monitoring delegation to 
to see the election of Tsai Ing-wen, has a government whose policies are very similar to that of Canada, strong on um, environment, um, um, rights of uh, gays and, and lesbians, uh, very strong on, um, on the rights of the indigenous people in Taiwan. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Taiwan is very much in tune with Canada in terms of its uh, political system, and it also belies the idea, which actually was articulated by our own ambassador, Ambassador Barton, when he gave evidence to the Commons Committee on Canada-China relations, which is that somehow or other the Chinese Communist Party's autocratic one-party repressive rule is um, the only option for Chinese people consistent with China's traditional culture. You know, Taiwan stands out as a as a beacon of of democracy and freedom and and the rights of citizenship. So, you know, China doesn't like that at all and would like to, as they say, return Taiwan to the embrace of the motherland through military conquest. But what they're also doing is seeking to subvert their system through uh, putting spies and agents into key Taiwan institutions, trying to co-opt politicians, um, uh, uh, distort information, and uh, and also threaten Taiwan militarily by running... um, uh, People's Liberation uh, Air Force planes over into Taiwan airspace where the Taiwanese have to respond with their own planes. So the, the Taiwan foreign minister is basically suggesting it's rapidly coming to a point where Taiwan will not be able to sustain the Chinese measure me, pressure, and we will see a situation where where there is no Chinese democracy left in the world. And, you know, that's not something that I think Canada wants to see. Is it too late for Taiwan, considering the relationship they have with China? And, and and dispute over ownership. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at a place where, as you say, it's 24 million or so, which means that mainland China has 60 times the population at, at 1.5 billion. And so, you know, clearly China has the, the strength and the resources to to put an end to the, the Taiwan democratic regime and turn Taiwan into a another province of China. The question is, should we simply accept that inevitability? Um, so far, Taiwan's managed to maintain its its vibrant independence uh, since, you know, the communist takeover in 1949. And so the question is, you know, should we just allow that to, to go, or should we stand with Taiwan and and try and um, and develop uh, international recognition for that regime, maybe their own seat on the uh, United Nations and participation in international institutions and, you know, much more enhanced trade relations with Taiwan, and maybe even Canada could establish diplomatic relations with China, I'm sorry, with Taiwan, despite China's objection. You know, there are a lot of things we could do of a symbolic nature. Whether that would make any substantive difference to the really the tragedy of of uh, Taiwan China relations you know that's a that's a open to debate for sure uh, it, it does it does uh, obviously Taiwan wants support from the western the rest of the world uh, uh, ensuring their independence however do they view the Taiwan as independent now well I think that um, you know technically they maintain the fiction that uh, Taiwan is the Republic of China, as opposed to the mainland, the one with 60 times the population, the People's Republic of China. And so they don't, uh, the government is is called the Republic of China government, 
Um, but, you know, the, the party that's in power now, the Democratic Progressive Party, is a party which is dedicated to Taiwan's independence, and I think they'd really like to establish a republic of Taiwan that would, uh, you know, have no connection to uh, any pretense over, over China. And, you know, and, and in theory, um, Taiwan's aspiration is to retake the motherland for the Nationalist Party, but, you know, that's just practically... Mm not happening. And so they, I think that because the Chinese have said that if they had a referendum on independence or unilaterally de- um, you know, declared independence or changed the name of the country, Taiwan would invade, uh, China would invade Taiwan immediately. They've maintained this sort of ambiguity. But there's no question that people in Taiwan do not identify as Chinese. They identify as Taiwanese and would like to be masters in their own house. Will anyone who supports Taiwan, any of our allies who might support Taiwan, will they be considered an enemy to China? Absolutely. I mean, you know, they, they, um, there are only a tiny number of very minor countries, mostly, um, you know, um, Pacific Island states that have official diplomatic relations with Taiwan, because China won't abide that. But we all have the equivalent of embassies there. Uh, which go under some other name like trade and economic and cultural office or something like that. So, in fact, we all have de facto relations to Taiwan, and Taiwan's a very important economy for Canada. Even though it's small, it's uh, prosperous. I believe the average income in Taiwan is actually higher than it is here in Canada now. So it's been a successful nation in terms of economic development and in terms of its political transformation to a democracy. And people in Taiwan want to keep it that way. They don't want to live, uh, you know, under the Chinese Communist Party um, regime. Uh, Obviously, we went through this discussion with Hong Kong, and and now we're seeing it with Taiwan. Obviously, uh, the hope that uh, that China would would uh, envelop anything that Hong Kong or Taiwan has learned. Instead, it's the other way around. So, where is Canada on this? What what does what where is Canada on the situation with Taiwan? Well, I think we've been fairly wimpish about it in in bending to China's will. And compared to a lot of nations, we've not been as explicit about our recognition of the um, de facto independence of Taiwan or uh, supportive of the fact that Taiwan is is a democratic country that, that really shares the same sort of universal values of human rights, freedom, and independence of law that, that Canada holds out as a, as a beacon to, to um, uh, national development. So, you know, I would like to see us doing a bit more to support Taiwan. We could be sending, for example, um, higher-level um, government officials to engage in diplomatic, normal diplomatic relations with chi- Taiwan and, in, in general, um, you know, give China the uh, understanding that, that they may have uh, some sort of dispute with Taiwan, but we want to deal with Taiwan for what it is, which is a regime that is in effective control of that island, and therefore, you know, we should recognize that and and engage with them appropriately. The other would be for Canada to support Taiwan's entrance into the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, because Taiwan is, in fact, a market economy with uh, predictable rule of law and would fully qualify. Uh, China does not, because China's economy is, is controlled by the, the Chinese Communist State and 
and doesn't abide by international norms. But, um, you know, we could make that gesture and it would be meaningful uh, in terms of our um, showing support for the reality of, of Taiwan. But uh, I don't see Canada doing that uh, because we seem to be so beholden to the, to the mainland that we, we just don't uh, behave in a way which is consistent with what most Canadians regard as, as our values of honesty and, and uh, maybe a bit of uh, willingness to stand up for, for uh, nations that are being bullied. Charles Burton has been with us, senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and former counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Happy Christmas. Back at you. If we don't chat, thank you so much for all you've contributed over this year. We really do agree, appreciate that, Charles. Thank you so much. Bye. Apple. Apple. You know Apple. Apple Inc. It's moving forward with a self-driving car technology and is targeting 2024 to produce a passenger vehicle that could include its own breakthrough battery technology. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Tell us, what do you know about Apple's car, and can you see this on the road by 2024? Uh, I won't speak to the date, to the, because who knows? I mean, the, the, the nature of technology is it's literally unpredictable. But I will say this, uh, um, if we look back at the last 300 years, and there have been all kinds of good scholarly academic studies that, you know, take a very big picture and say, you know, what's happened? And, and I'm very optimistic. I, I'm not talking about 2024 or 2025 or 6. I'm just saying I believe there's going to be a breakthrough in batteries. Somebody's going to do it. I don't know who. Apple sounds like a really good guess because they're so innovative. And the the need is there, and the history of the last 300 years has been endless technological breakthroughs and innovation. I was just looking at an article from Oxford uh, Data, um, which is a, a research center at Oxford University, and they have the, they put all these graphs and charts and so forth, and they showed how for thousands and thousands of years, human beings all around the world lived on something like, in present dollar terms, about a dollar a day. And we were, life was short, nasty, and brutish. And we lived uh, very short, we lived horrible lives, and we died very young. And then in the last 300 years, our incomes have skyrocketed. I know there's some books out there saying capitalism is evil, and it's produced suffering, and it's just simply nonsense. If you look at the graph, the incomes in the market economies just went vertical, vertical upward. The standard of living skyrocketed. We're the richest people in the richest part of the world in the history of the human species. Why? Technological innovation. Technological innovation is what raises the standard of living. And this is yet one more example. I'm, I'm very, you know, at the end of this year, we're at the end of the year now, Scott, and I'm very optimistic for the future. I know there's all mm. doom and gloom and COVID's going to kill us all. I don't believe it. Some people are going to die. I agree. I agree with you a hundred. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I tell my teenagers that you guys are the next great generation. And yeah. we've talked to many people about that. I mean, we remember the. Uh, we don't remember. People told us about the plague. We read about the plague, and then the Roaring Twenties that followed this. So I, I think this will be a, a very pivotal time. A pivotal time in industry and technology moving forward. And I agree. And I think that there's going to be two or three. Uber breakthroughs, no pun intended there, but, you know, just unbelievable, mind-boggling breakthroughs. One of them is going to be artificial intelligence, which is going to allow computers to do things that we cannot imagine, we cannot contemplate, so we can't even talk about it. You and I can't talk about it, not because we're afraid to, we just cannot comprehend 
the changes that it's going to produce. Another is batteries and, and, and automotive cars. This is going to transform our society. It's going to transform it because that brings to an end the, the global warm or a very large step towards the end of global warming and our fear of, you know, the planet coming to an end from that. And secondly, it's going to transform the way, the way we've lived for the last 50 or 100 years. We're not going to get, I've been saying this to environmentalists from the very beginning. I have these arguments all the time. We say we, they dream and fantasize about getting rid of the car, the automobile. Even if it's electric, they say, we've got to get rid of it. It's horrible, horrible. You know, it well, we still the have the congestion problems, whether the car is gas or electric. And if it goes autonomous and electric, I mean, just think about it. I want everyone to think about this. I'm at work somewhere. So I go to my app on my cell phone and say, James, which I'll call my autonomous car. You know, like in the movies, James was the butler. Uh, I'll say, James, come and pick me up. Here's the coordinates. And so my autonomous James, the butler car, drives down from parking out in the burbs where the land is free and cheap parking downtown as you know is very expensive comes down and picks me up and i go out there at the, at the pre-arranged time and i can park my car wherever i want i don't have to pay for parking I'll, i can park it in a farmer's field for goodness sake because i'll tell james to go out and park it in a free field somewhere that he can find or that i will predetermine my point is is it liberates us well not we're not going to be liberated from the car we're too big a country Anyone who thinks that we're going to get rid of the automobile and all be taking mass transit doesn't has never looked at the map of Canada. <laughs> doesn't understand it's 8,900 kilometers, and there's only 38 million of us. We need cars. We need transportation. We're not going to be biking to the grocery store at 80 years old in January at minus 25 with paper bags because they've banned plastic bags with handles. Not going to happen. So rather than and my response when I have this argument with environmentalists, they say, oh, you're going to let the earth die and it's going to, we're all on fire. No, we're going to come up with technological innovation yeah. to yeah. solve the problem. You know, you know, you bring up a very interest. You bring up a very interesting point, Ian, because again, you know, uh, with talking with with my kids and such, and 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 the world's coming to an end, and and, you know, all you have to do is go back in history. Well, I remember it was the rainforest that was going to be gone, and then prior to that, it was the ozone layer, and then prior to that, it was acid rain, and then prior to that, it was leaded gasoline, and these are all problems created by technology, which in the end, technology fixed. So again. Technology will get us out of climate change just the way it got us into climate change, not overtaxing the hell out of everybody. Exactly. And and let me go further, because I've had this debate also. People say, oh, yes, but look at all the chemicals in the environment. We're all going to die from all of the chemical devastation. I, I keep pulling out the Stats Canada. I have it from Stats Canada, the graph, 1900, light, average life expectancy. Do you know what that graph does? It just goes straight up like a ski yeah. hill in reverse. We live longer and longer and longer and longer. Well, if all of the stuff we are doing in our world was killing us, we would be living shorter and shorter and shorter. We are not. And then, you know, you get the anecdotal stories. Well, I know someone who got cancer at 52. Yes, it's very sad. It's tragic. But you cannot generalize from an outlier, some one person, when most of us, the vast majority of us, are living longer and longer. My late mother lived to 91 on her own, fully autonomous, to use that word, mm. in her own apartment till the very end. And there's lots and lots and lots of people like that. So my point is the technology. I, I was at a seminar just last week, and it was with a doctor, a leading doctor, won't name his name, from Ottawa. And he said, healthcare is going to change in the next five years. And for the better, he says, we're going to go to telehealth, no congestion at the hospitals anymore, sitting in the waiting room for an hour and a half, two hours. 
because you're going to have all your charts and, and you know data done, your tests, your X-rays, your blood tests, and done. And then the doctors are going to read all that from the database. It's all digital now, and they'll diagnose you over the phone. And then they'll offer you phone or Zoom or email or text. There's going to be a plethora of ways for them to talk to you. I was just sitting there. I was just so ecstatic. I mean, the idea of going over to the hospital and have to pay ten or twelve dollars and wait for an hour and a half to see the doctor for five minutes who tells me, "Okay, you're okay because your tests are good," seems to me a waste of time. And he was saying healthcare is going to get much better. It's going to be much more targeted. The prescriptions they give us for the drugs and so forth, again, driven by technological innovation. We're going to have, he says, there's software now that can diagnose your genome for certain risk factors. Mm-hmm. You're individual. You, Scott, or me, Ian. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, that's great. And, and so my, what I'm saying is the technology is, and it's going to come in spurts and bounds and, you know, and, uh, you know a couple of steps back, four steps forward, but it's going to come. And there's going to be a breakthrough in, in self-drive, in a, a break, uh, battery technology. It's going to come down in price, and it's, the range is going to go up. And, and if anybody can do it, it's Apple because of their history of innovation. And they're going to come up with the technology to ensure that safe driving, self-driving cars are completely safe and not, you know, killing people uh, accidentally or inadvertently. So the next five to ten years, I think, in, in cars, in healthcare, the environment is going to be really uh, amazing times. Um, Apple more innovative than General Motors or Ford when it comes to uh, the automotive, uh, the automobile, and is this what's need to? Is this exactly what's needed in order to break that that old template, that old paradigm? Yes. In fact, it was a very distinguished professor at Harvard. He tra- uh, he, he actually died prematurely. He was seventy two, um, and uh, but he wrote the definitive book. Clayton Christensen on on uh, disruptive innovation. He coined the phrase disruptive, and he said that lots of innovations are not disruptive. They're just routine. You know, you're tweaking a technology to be a little tiny bit better. Nothing wrong with that. And he called that routine in, uh, innovation. And he said, whenever you have a breakthrough or a, a change in, in routine innovation, the incumbent firms that are in the market already they win. So if GM figures out a slightly faster way to build a car on the assembly line, GM will win as opposed to an outsider company. But he said with disruptive innovation, where you're coming up with a brand new innovation that is new to the world, he says the outsider firm can see the problems with different eyes, and they have a different mind frame, mindset to approaching it. And so he argued that when you have a really radical disruptive innovation, the outside firm meaning the one that's not already in the marketplace, is going to win. What that, and he based this on studies of many, many different industries. So this was actually what was happening in many industries. So if you apply that to the auto industry, um, in other words, it's, the breakthroughs are not going to come from companies in the auto industry called Toyota or Ford mm. or General Motors, according to Clayton Christensen's theory, that innovative, dynamic, disruptive innovation comes from the outsider looking in on the industry. Apple is the outsider. They're not a car company. We know that. But if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be a very innovative company that's not in the industry. And it looks like if this, uh, if this information in this article today in the Globe about Apple and this information is accurate, uh, it, it would suggest that Apple is going to make that breakthrough. And it wouldn't surprise me because of their culture of innovation that's been there. It's because of the DNA of, of the late, great, remarkable Steve Jobs, who built that into the culture of Apple. 
Ian Lee has been with us, associate professor at Carleton University Sprott School of Business, talking about Apple and their car possibly hitting the pavement by 2024. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. If we don't chat with you between now and the holiday, all the best, and thank you so much for you've done uh, for the show over the year. We uh, greatly appreciate it. And all the best to you, Scott, and your family, and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you, Ian. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.